Hello, and welcome to One World, One Health, with the latest ideas to improve the health of our planet and its people. I'm Maggie Fox. Planet Earth faces pollution, climate change, and new and re-emerging infectious diseases, and they are all linked. This podcast is brought to you by the One Health Trust, with bite-sized insights into ways to help. In this episode, we're talking to someone who spent a whole lot of time directly helping people, Dr. Kirk Skirto, a family doctor in Buffalo, New York, who spent more than 20 years sharing his medical skills in 11 other countries across four continents. He's worked with groups such as Doctors for Global Health in Uganda. Kirk, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you so much for having me. So how does a family doctor from upstate New York end up traveling the world to practice medicine? In college, I uh, was very excited by doing uh, home health care work. I was drawn to the field of medicine, uh, but at the same time, I was very involved with social justice movements and public health initiatives. Uh, I couldn't decide which of these two fields to, to go into. Uh, and it was a trip to rural Jamaica uh, that really inspired me. Uh, and I felt very appreciated. I, I saw there was deep poverty, that there were deep needs. I really loved the, the, the work. And when I came back to Rochester, you know, I sat in this dusty old library and, and I thought to myself, which of these two paths should I choose? And, and I realized that by doing global health work, I could really serve in the medical field as, as well as the public health field. Um, so all along, I was, I was drawn to both areas, basically. Then over the course of uh, these trips to, to many different nations, you know, I, I've learned so much from people and uh, wanted to contribute to, to their empowerment to this work. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the projects you've both started yourself and worked with over these years? I began uh, with what I call these uh, suitcase medicine trips that were inspiring to me at the time, but in retrospect, were, were not very helpful at all to the people living in these, in these communities. Uh, so the first was to rural Jamaica, and the second was to uh, villages in Mexico. And the suitcase medicine concept is essentially coming in as an outsider group uh, to places with uh, uh, minimal medical care, uh, bringing all these medical supplies and, and medicines in your, in your suitcases, essentially opening them up and providing this free care in makeshift clinics. Uh, so it feels very good to the people providing the care, but it's typically done uh, parallel to uh, the local healthcare system. And, and it actually uh, draws confidence away from it. It draws funding away from it. It draws attention away from it. Uh, ends up uh, perhaps building uh, dependence and not really help in the long run. On the second trip, I really came to see the many deficiencies of, of this model, which is the most common model for doing global health work. Uh, meanwhile, I was studying uh, public health and uh, and then I, I went on to uh, to develop a, a partnership in rural Uganda, basing it off the models that had already been successful in uh, Ghana and Kenya. And essentially, the, the idea was to listen to uh, local health authorities and, and village leaders and, and just everyday people in the villages and hear what they were struggling with, uh, what they envisioned for, for their own health, and what type of projects they would like to partner on in a partnership that they actually led. So, so this was, was an initiative that was inspiring for me and I, and I was involved uh, for three years and it took up a great deal of my time and it, it offered me a lot more uh, uh, fulfillment. Um, and since then, I joined a lot of other uh, very professional organizations, um, including, like, like you mentioned, uh, uh, Doctors for Global Health, uh, Beeler College of Medicine, the, the uh, uh, International Pediatric AIDS Initiative, and, and, and a number of other initiatives doing public health work uh, um, and uh, system strengthening and training on, on health workers. So what you're describing is kind of a way of getting away from what's been so highly criticized now, people from wealthy, white-majority nations showing up in, in a developing nation and saying, hi, here's how you do things, and we're not only going to show you how to do it, we're going to do it ourselves because we're better at it. 
Yes, it's a very good way to put it. A lot of people feel, you know, they're experts in, in their own fields. Uh, they've been trained in the United States, uh, for example, and they have all this uh, knowledge that they can apply and they can easily figure out the solutions and help in these villages that appear to have no, no functioning healthcare system. But on deeper inspection, you know, essentially all of these places have functioning health systems. They, they Even if they don't have a hospital or a clinic, they may have community health workers do, doing home visits, uh, uh, traditional healers. Uh, many lower-income countries, um, it's the pharmacists that are actually doing malaria tests and, and are providing care, asking about symptoms. Um, so really, I think we can learn a lot from medical anthropologists and, and really uh, taking a grassroots approach and acknowledging that there is a lot of care there and that the care that is going on is far better than the care that we can offer. Um, we're coming in essentially blindfolded. Uh, we don't understand the local culture, uh, the language. We don't know the health systems, what kind of problems uh, they have. Even if we study tropical medicine, uh, yeah, you know, essentially we, we, don't, we don't know the local context and where to refer folks and, uh, and more importantly, how to strengthen the care that, that, that's already going on. So I think really it's so important for us to be humble and to come in and say, look, we don't know what to do here. We have these sincere intentions. We want to help you, but please teach us how we can partner and how you can lead that partnership uh, so that we can uh, help fulfill your healthcare goals in, in some small way with you leading the effort. So I think uh, bi-directional teaching and training is, is so important where we can, you know, admit, you know, our lack of knowledge to local health workers and say, look, can you please teach me about uh, topics that you would like to, to teach about? And I would love to do the same topics that you that you pick out. And this way, it's not a top-down uh, process of coming in with, with all the answers, but rather learning um, from these very wise uh, local health workers. So who was the professional who was taking care of this man with river blindness? And what were some of the treatments that he or she was using? It was a local health officer. Um, and they, they were doing uh, skin snips, uh, these biopsies, to basically determine whether the war was present. And they were doing uh, public health campaigns, uh, doing these uh, treatments with a medicine for everyone in the village, actually. And if it wasn't successful, then bring them back for future uh, treatments. And so what were you able to add to the equation? What were you able to add to the equation? What did you bring to the table that helped? So this particular health worker was interested in learning more about diabetes, more about heart disease. And those are conditions we, we have more commonly in the United States. And I was happy to prepare some lessons for him on, on this. And, and he was very excited to, to do a lesson on, on river blindness and some other conditions um, uh, uh, for me. So this is really one model of training that can kind of take away the top-down power imbalance. Uh, doing a train-the-trainer session, essentially teaching people to, to be teachers, whether it be resuscitating uh, uh, newborns that, that, that don't breathe or you know, using clean birth kits that can cut down uh, deaths of, of, of newborns. So essentially, we can come in as outsiders with strange accents doing doing lectures, and it can go over the heads of, of uh, local folks not understanding us. But a much better way is for people from the culture itself to do the teaching and for us to teach the teachers and, and what they would like to learn about. There's a massive, massive shortage of healthcare workers um, all around the world. So in Africa alone, it's uh, 4.2 million, and it's projected to increase in 2030 to 6.1 million. So these small groups, you know, over 500 in the U.S. are coming over, staying for less than two weeks and treating as many patients as they possibly can. It's just a drop in the bucket compared with, with the level of need. Um, and of course, the health workers will do a much better job than, than we ever could uh, treating them. So helping to build up the health system, furthering the training and looking at other ways that uh, it could function better, you know, can really be far from more help. And you're using the term a lot, social justice. Can you tell us a little bit what you mean about that? I was a political science major in college, and then I went on and got my master's in global public health. In, in both fields, we really um, conceptualize the world in terms of power. Has it and who doesn't has it? Who's, who's abusing it? Um, so I essentially define 
social justice is transferring power from those with an abundance of it to those with not enough of it to meet their basic needs, including housing, education, healthcare access. These are the social determinants of health, which uh, basically allow us to obtain our, our state of health far more than you know what diseases we have and, and other factors in our, in our health system. So essentially, um, ill health around the world can nearly always be traced to major abuses uh, um, in power. And, um, and that's why empowerment for people in low-resource countries, I think, is really the key to, to countering this, this social justice issue. One great example you give is people living in El Salvador and how they had a completely different idea of what they deserved and what they could achieve. So it was, it was a very inspiring community that this Healthy Human Rights uh, Organization uh, partnered with. So the community left, fled as refugees uh, during the, the Civil War, and they all came back in mass to uh, join their community once again. And they learned so many lessons, and they came together, identified their health goals, and uh, they developed this Alcoholics Anonymous group, a peer-led um, HIV education group. They were they're both very successful. Uh, they started up a higher education program uh, to get folks to college to become the future village leaders. And uh, they were organizing a, a nonprofit as well as a human rights um, radio show. So they're a very empowered community that were you know, deeply aware of their needs and they were doing quite a bit uh, um, about it. And then as outsiders coming in, you know, we were simply following their lead, which is what I think really outsiders should always do. We're doing global health on, on top of initiatives. Um, to partner on the sidelines and just encourage the fruition of their goals. Uh, and what what are they lacking? It, it's, it differs in every community. And sometimes um, they have some ideas, but they've lost inspiration. And, and we can help to co-facilitate groups to, to rehash these ideas and try to help them develop sustainable community programs. And other times, you know, it's it's not at all needed because these programs are, are already ongoing, but they've identified a few resources that they're lacking. Um, and we can come in and provide, you know, small amount of resources as long as most of it's coming from the community. So it's not becoming dependent on folks from, from the outside. You also work with indigenous populations in the states where you live now most of the time. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? So I currently uh, uh, serve the Tanawanda Seneca Nation, so I'm the family doctor uh, providing care out there. I love working across different cultures, whether it be on other continents or even here um, in, in North America. And, uh, you know, they're really a tremendous group that are following a lot of a lot of traditional ways and they have uh, different concepts of, of health and illness. And, and again, just, just as I would in, in lower income countries, I really like to follow their lead. And, and some say, look, I have diabetes, but I refuse Western medicine. You know, I'm very interested in making diet changes and changing my lifestyle and, and uh, doing exercise to improve this condition rather than using medicines. And so I, I kind of meet them where they're at and, and try to, um, you know, further their awful knowledge and their, and their kind of control of their own health and their health status. So have you learned anything from the Seneca Nation in working with them? Yes, I've learned a great deal. You know, I've, I'm extremely impressed with how close they are with, to the environment and they've done a tremendous job on uh, setting up environmental health initiatives and uh, and trying to, to gain more power and control uh, over the environment that really is theirs to, to begin with where all settlers here, in, you know, taking over their, their territory basically in New York State and throughout the country for that matter. And um, they're fighting against many challenges, but have, have done a very good job. And Kirk, you've got a book out about all of these points you've been making. I've seen um, seven major approaches to global health work. And most of them, most groups that do global health work, they're following this this traditional model that's very top-down and is charity-based. It's outsiders coming in and um, superimposing the, their own ideas with very good intentions. Uh, but these solutions, you know, are not evidence-based. They're not sustainable. They don't really inspire people to keep the improvements uh, going. 
So suitcase medicine, I described earlier, you know, folks coming in uh, uh, and doing this free medical care and makeshift clinics really can very well be more harmful than, than helpful. And also building health facilities, um, especially when it's a parallel system, often can disempower folks and, and hurt the local economy. So these are really common solutions outsiders have traditionally done that are not so helpful. So I've written a book uh, called Doing Global Health Work, Approaches That Really Make a Difference with uh, Hesperian Health Guides. And, and this book is really uh, critiquing these two common models and going into uh, five other models that are uh, more empowering and sustainable and, and are really taking the drive of local people. You're involved in clinical capacity building, public health capacity building, strengthening the local health system, uh, professional disaster relief, where you're not simply rushing in you know, with a clinical uh, sort of care, but do, taking a public health approach and, and really helping in an evidence-based way and also building these um, community-based health programs from the ground up from the folks themselves and us just partnering on, on the sidelines. And I really do analyze dramatically our, our agendas as outsiders. So again, there's usually sincere intentions when outsiders are going abroad to, to try to contribute to health and, and healthcare. But many times we're following the agenda of our organization. Uh, maybe there's a religious agenda to convert people to a certain uh, religion or, you know, the U.S. government or the military or promoting security or, or you know, foreign relations uh, um, goals. You know, companies might be trying to improve their image or to market their products. Uh, many donors, you know, are very interested in one particular area. Maybe, maybe it's malaria, maybe, maybe it's Ebola, but maybe it's not the most important health issue affecting a community. And maybe even if it is the most important issue, they're all geared up to do something different. And really, we should be following their lead, not taking our own agendas. I've also analyzed seven uh, work agendas. And, and these agendas, you know, include things like charity care and, and charity service that, you know, we aim to help others, but it actually ends up helping us more, or at least making us feel better about what we're, what we're doing. So, you know, uh, building up a local capacity, strengthening the health system and empowering, these are agendas that uh, can do so much more. And I think, uh, you know, we can take our training and inspiration and intentions and really uh, partner with folks in such a more uh, productive way, as long as a partnership is locally led and uh, we're, we're just on the sidelines. Kirk, thanks so much for joining us and chatting about this. Thank you so much. If you liked this podcast, which is brought to you by the One Health Trust, please share it by email, LinkedIn, or your favorite social media platform. And let us know what else you'd like to hear about at OWOH at OneHealthTrust.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to One World, One Health, brought to you by the One Health Trust. I'm Ramanan Lakshminarayan, founder and president of the One Health Trust. You can subscribe to One World, One Health on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at One Health Trust, One Word, for updates on One World, One Health, and the latest in research on One Health issues like drug resistance, disease spillovers, and the social determinants of health. Finally, please do consider donating to the One Health Trust to support this podcast and other initiatives and research that help us promote health and well-being worldwide. Until next time.